Welcome. I should have double-checked, but I didn't, but I'm still pretty sure this is episode 147 of the Nokomoto podcast. Coming to you from my house, not Moto One Podcast Network Studios. What was the reason why we weren't at Moto One? Oh yeah, we spent all day at the track, and then we came back here, and then we tried to record, and it didn't work. Equipment failed. Well, no, we left the track. We went to Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Equipment failed, and we were like, fuck this place. We can do this better from Pete's place. From Moto Two Podcast <laughs> Network Studios. So here we are. Oh, man, yesterday was a big fail. So what you're listening to is a re-recording, and this is why we're a day late. Sorry, but also not sorry, because for the strict, well, the, the the tight schedule, the last minute schedule that we do this show, we have an amazing success rate, I think. So here we go. What are we going to talk about in this episode? Well, we know exactly what we're going to talk about because we've already done it. We are going to do Best Worst Bike in the World this week, and then we're going to break down sort of with a a very short uh, recap of our last day at the track, the similarities and differences in dirt technique and street riding technique, what really translates. A lot of people seem to think one is black magic and one is white magic and never the two shall meet, but that's not true. We're, we're going to kind of talk about the, the back and forth. What, what are the common things? And what is really different about it thus far in our experience? So where should we start with Best Worst Bike again? Uh, yeah, let's do it. I should introduce us. I'm your host, MotoGP, and with me is your other host, Wiggy. Yo. Okay. So we're going to do Best Worst Bike in the World this week. Let's get right to it, because we're just going straight through on this episode. No breaks, no nothing. Okay, here's how it works. You know the drill, but just in case you're new, we're going to catch you up. Each week, we each pick a different motorcycle. We alternate who is best and who is worst bike in the world this week. We usually don't know what each other have chosen. It's usually a surprise, <laughs> but we already know what each other have chosen this time. So it should be really brilliant. Although, I know I didn't take any extra opportunity to do any more (laughs) research. So, we'll see how it goes. Probably very similar results to yesterday. Um, Yeah, you know, if if you're upset by it, just remember it's a different way to look at a couple bikes than you might normally look at them or ever look at them. So, don't get upset. Just remember... Uh, you can send your emails to contact at nokomotopodcast.com. And like the ambulance driver at the track said yesterday, there's no crying in motorcycles. Or ATVs, for that matter. So, Swigs, I know that you have worst bike in the world this week for once. Yes. Are you ready to reveal it to the people? I am. Okay. And the worst bike in the world this week is... The Suzuki DR200. (gasps) Gasp. 
It's another dirt bike. <laughs> well, okay. Technically, been, it's a dual sport. That's true. It's a dual sport. This is a bike you can ride on the street. Uh, we've been picking a lot of dirt bikes lately. It's been on our mind. It won't be forever. But anyway, the DR200. I want to get this out of the way because this was a big moment yesterday. In looking at the specs on this bike and looking at the price, well, I nearly had a fucking heart attack and you almost fell off the couch when I announced that Suzuki has finally updated their website. They took a big jump from 1993 straight into, well, it's not really 2021, but it at least looks at like 2018 quality of, des- of web design, right? It's it's a couple, it's, you know, it wouldn't be Suzuki if it was right up to date. It's a big jump. It's a, there's a, they've made a lot of progress. Yeah. I You know, they, <laughs> there we go. Okay, so uh, break down for people what the DR200 is. So the DR200 is sort of another fossil that sort of like the TW200 has kind of existed in its current state for the better part of 40 years. It's a dual sport, 200cc motor, obviously. It is street legal. It's got its turn signals and its indicator. comes with a title and everything. Uh, And that's about it. Now, you're still going to see a fairly wimpy little square swing arm. It's got a rear drum brake. It's got a tiny little front disc. It's still carbureted. Uh, The most fancy feature it has is an electric start. And all of the styling, they're calling they're calling it a retro styling with the big square headlight and the plastics. In reality, it became retro by just not updating it. Yeah, <laughs> this wasn't a conscious choice. This was this was a, a lack of action at a rebranding. So. You've really got to ask the question, why does this exist still? And why does it exist at the price that it does? And what else could you have for that price or similar to that price? Because this is this is 199 cc's. It really doesn't have much power. In terms of actual off-roading it suspension was good at the time as a budget option but today it really doesn't hold up and when there's so many more modern bikes for not a lot much more money it really doesn't make a lot of sense you know you can spend like another $700 and you could get a KLX 250 which you can also get street legal and it's got proper forks and you still get a kick. You st- well, you don't get a kickstart, but you still get an electric start. You get some more modern features, but why does this exist? Why? And, and who is it for still? Because yeah, it might be nice to have a small, like 
fairly low ride height, unintimidating dual sport. But how many people can go and do things like trail riding without highway access? Because this is a sub 250cc bike. And even at that point, who is going to get in? Who's going to be into this bike? Who's also going to be into the styling? And even then, who lives in some rural place where you can go and take trails without highway access? Who wouldn't go buy something used and fix it up? This is a motorcycle for people with no self-esteem. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the the DRZ 400, by contrast, is absolutely wonderful. It is one of those bikes that does 9 out of 10 jobs, right? Mm -hmm. It just doesn't do big performance, really. It's you can you can ride it around a lot of different things, but you're not you're not going full send on the DRZ four hundred. It's just not that kind of thing, right? Um, and for a pretty attractive price, like sixty eight hundred bucks, it does all these things. It's totally competent on the road. You can throw some better tires on it because the tires it's going to come with are horrible, but. Beyond that, it it ticks all the boxes. It looks kind of cool, except for the gray color. We'll get to that. Um, If you get it in black or yellow or just anything but that fucking Suzuki gray color. Seriously, Suzuki, you updated the website. Let's talk about the gray now. They've also got some weird charcoal colors for like the DR200, like the new one. And it's really just like... I feel like the color palette Suzuki is going for in 2020 and 2021 is depression. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not, not strong. You're getting a little too with the times in this, okay? Like, we know the world is drab and awful, but <laughs> you don't need to reflect the times that accurately. So the the DR4, DRZ400 is is fantastic and it's fantastic because it hits a certain sweet spot so well no one else has really come close yeah honda's got their their 250l and 250 rally which is kind of close but doesn't quite have the torque and some of the grunt that the drz 400 has right uh, they, I guess Honda's upgrading to a 300 and maybe that's going to be close enough. It might be a little bit more, uh, you know, higher output motor. Maybe that'll compete with the 400. But if you're going for the 200, it's because, well, you didn't want to pay the extra $2,000 over two to three years in your financing plan to get a bike you're actually going to be happy with because you have no self-esteem. You're like, I don't deserve more than 17 horsepower at the rear wheel. I don't deserve more than 11 foot pounds of torque at the rear wheel. I'll tell everybody this thing makes 20 horsepower and oh, anything over 20 is unusable horsepower in the dirt. Yeah. Except it's road legal. 
okay? You can definitely use more than 20 horsepower on the street. I'll tell you what. And as you pointed out, what good is it being road legal if you can't ride it to the trails? Right. So either this is a pure trail bike that you would trailer, or it's just a city bike that you would never take on trails. Right. So in either of these cases... And it cannot join the two up as a dual sport. Right. So in either of these two cases, Honda has something that is a way better option. So you could go for a Honda uh, CRF 250F, which is basically the exact same price, brand new, has another five or six horsepower. You can make it street legal if you really want to, but like why? It's just a really great off-road bike. And it's it's closer to full size. uh, people have described it as sort of a seven eighths size dirt bike. It's just a couple inches lower than a full size dirt bike. You know, instead of like the 30, whatever inch, I don't know, however high the seats are in our bikes. Yeah. It's just an inch or two lower, but it, it looks like a proper dirt bike. It basically is. It's got gearing. That's perfect for like a little bit milder riding. You know, it's yeah. not just full on intense. It's 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 a perfect sort of trick. It's 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 if you're doing all the things except the super extreme stuff, but it doesn't specialize in any of the road stuff and the price is right. Now, if you really are attracted to the road legal part, well, then you'll spend five hundred dollars more and you'll get the CRF 250 L or the rally at which is about the the price of honestly the. The DRZ, but you get things like a windshield and fuel you, injection, fuel injection, and you get things like uh, ABS and and all that, right? You could have a sweet Honda 250 <clears throat> rally for the price of a DRZ, even, or you can go the exact same price for something with noticeably better suspension and performance and liquid cooling and all that crap in the in the 250F but see the person who gets the DR200 has no self esteem it's the only explanation it is outclassed in performance and price no matter which way you look at the DR200 yeah well also if you're willing to give up the uh, the utility of the dual sport which for a fair few number of people is unnecessary. It like it it's a pretty niche thing to actually need. Everyone was really was really big on on dual sports for a while. Kind of like, you know, like twenty fourteen to twenty six and everyone's like, Oh, look at all these cool dual sports and then everyone stopped talking about them. Just like they stopped talking about the Tenere seven hundred and the Triumph scrambler 1200 because it turns out that these are all fads that nobody actually buys these are passing ideas now if you go the complete opposite direction you say i don't need it to be street legal then what you can do is for half the price of new you can buy something 20 years old that's got more performance in every aspect you can get something like a KLF, like a 
like a YZ250F with twice the horsepower. Yeah, but when you have no self-esteem, you're not worth money and you're definitely not worth time. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I... It doesn't have the the charm and quite the capability of the TW two hundred. You know the TW two hundred we love. It's such a tractor, and it doesn't. It well also the TW two hundred is straight up more useful. It, it has a higher top speed. You can ride. Yes, it's not a two fifty. You can't you can't take it on a highway, but it is more roadable than a DR two hundred. It, it is. The, um, I don't know if that's true. I've, I see people on TW200s. I really don't see people on, on, on city roads or town roads, just local roads on DR200s. I don't see it. Uh, Maybe that's a, that's something to do with our area. I don't, I don't know. I, I have thought to myself, there is a way the DR200 could work. And I think because it's outclassed in in every aspect, it needs to find a special weird niche. And I think there is one. And and it's something that it can do where it doesn't have to radically change. But I think if Suzuki raised the price like $900 on this thing, and they made it, they kept the name, they kept the overall design, because this, and in fact, like, like took the design back a little bit, um, made it okay. look even more sort of 80s, and went with some 80s Suzuki colors and shit. Just they like could, straight up, like, horribly cl- clashing colors, like yellow and purple. Yeah. And what they should do is go this weird KTM route and make it a liquid-cooled emissions meeting, slightly choked up, 200 two-stroke. That's road legal. That'll never happen. Well, I well <laughs> they'd have to charge more money is the reason. But there is a weird cult of people right now that just get such a boner for anything that's two-stroke and dirt and whatever. And, you know, Suzuki could even do something, like, really insane. So instead of the water buffalo, you know, it's like the water cougar or something. You know, give it some sort of insane nickname. The platypus. The Whatever. <laughs> it, it is possible to make an emissions-friendly two-stroke lick, um, fuel. I mean, KTM does it. They have a 300 that does it and a 350. Like KTM does it. Like it's possible. Suzuki can pull this trick off and people will pay stupid money for it. All it needs to be is slightly cheaper than a KTM. And that's not hard to pull off. And then it'll have a crazy cult status and it would stand on its own. They don't even have to really up the power. They could just make it a 202 stroke that makes. 26 horsepower and everyone would be over the moon about it to make a true 26 horsepower or your 30 horsepower at the rear wheel 202 stroke liquid cooled fuel injected 
everyone would be like, oh, it's awesome because it's two stroke and it sounds all like crazy, like Suzuki's used to. And, and they would get to roll because it pollutes a lot and it's hard to ride. And that means it's great. Exactly. That That is how a DR200 could work. Otherwise, they need to scrap it and move to a 300 like Kawasaki is doing, like Honda is doing. That's the way these things are going. No one wants a 200. They want a 300 single. And okay, I, you know, the 300s make more torque. And obviously that's a nice thing in an off-road bike. But as it stands, see, Suzuki is like with their website, they wait way too long to make a change. And I know they're a smaller company, so I think their whole plan is, well, let's wait until we have to make this change, because then we know we're not going to waste any resources on dead-end roads. I mean, they're kind of like the mad cats of the Japanese motorcycle industry (laughs) okay we're gonna have some listeners that are not familiar with mad cats (laughs) okay so mad cats so for all of the video game consoles um you know you have all of the standard controllers that you can buy with them anytime you've ever seen a highly dubious uh, controller plugged into a video game console nine times out of ten it's a mad cats well this is kind of specific to third and fourth generation consoles this is th- this wasn't really so much a thing on the nes you know and and this Commodore is like Atari. nintendo nintendo 64 and onwards oh no there were a lot of super nintendo mad cats yeah a lot of sega genesis anything with a turbo button oh the turbo button was the best i mean it wasn't but it was the best you thought to yourself like oh i'm gonna be unstoppable at mortal Kombat," and you turn on the turbo button and your character would just basically freeze on the screen (laughs) because you were unable to actually move the character because you realized you couldn't punch and walk at the same time (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was such a letdown, but the promise of the turbo, but every once in a while you would find a shooting game where the turbo button was immensely useful, but it still didn't add that much. Yeah. But I mean, like they, they always, they, they come into a particular segment, you know, like, like the, 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 the Gixxer 600 was a fantastic bike because it did a lot for people because, they came into a segment where everyone was saying, like, I, it, you can credit the Gixxer 600 with really keeping the 600cc class a thing. Because everybody else was making them for a little while, and everyone was thinking, why are we doing this? This makes no sense. These bikes basically cost as much as a leader bike to make. Like... We don't save money on empty sp- removing empty space in the in the cylinder. I mean, there's a few parts that we get to shave down, but we don't really save any money making these smaller bikes. Why are we doing it? And then Suzuki came out and released the Gixxer 600 and said, "Here's what it costs," and it was significantly cheaper than everybody else's, and it worked for them. And everybody said, "Oh." I can go buy a 600. This is in my price range. 
I, we, we wouldn't really have super sports in this day and age if it wasn't for, for Suzuki. Now, Yamaha carried the torch with the R6 after that, and arguably still are. Um, but, yeah, Suzuki... Well, the Jixxer 750 was really the first one. Uh, the 750 was the first one, but they, they really... See, I thought they made the 750, then they made the 600 that was smaller and the 1000 that was bigger. Like, because it was a 750 race class, which got bumped up to a thousand. Well, they just kept making the 750 because they're Suzuki and they do things way longer than they should. Well, a viewer can correct us if I'm wrong, but I believe the we don't have any viewers. Uh, yeah, (laughs) shut up. A listener can correct me, but I believe the 600 was the third Jixer. That sounds right. None of them are going to be cool as uh, as good as the cool as ice Jixer 750. It's true. Dual. Anyways, heads. the important thing is that like it may sound like a diss, but when Suzuki comes late to a category, they do kind of kill it in their own little way. They do fill a niche. Oh, they come really correct. Well. Yeah, they they did this with with the GS series when they finally went four stroke. They were late to the party, but they had the most reliable and powerful engines. But yeah, Suzuki made the some of the best air cooled inline fours in 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 the eighties. Like absolutely but they're just in no way iconic because they were so late to the party right yeah i but the the this dr200 this is i want to say the dr200 is from the mid 90s is that right and like all they've really changed on it is the body work yeah and I not would, even that much i would love to see suzuki you know, as as their next bike, they need to they can salvage some of like this '80s style. Well, no, well they they could salvage some of this styling. And they did. It's called the Van Van. Okay, hear me out. Okay, crazy idea. Suzuki needs to create an equivalent um, ADV scooter to the. Uh, and it's going to kind of follow a little bit of have a bit of legacy and follow a, somewhat in the styling of the the Bergman and Adventurized, and they can call it the Beastmaster. Okay, I didn't know this was going <laughs> to turn into made up motorcycle, but <laughs> I I I'm, I kind of like my idea of the two stroke DR two hundred. The, the two-stroke is strong. There's a lot of people that would go ape shit for that, right? I don't know how big of a market it is, but it, it could I work. feel like it's at least as big as a market as there there is was for the monkey bike. There were a lot more dudes that claimed to remember monkey bikes that actually did remember monkey bikes that were like, Ooh, I'll get that. If Suzuki puts out something sort of eighties looking, there's not the 60 year old guys, but there's a lot of 48 year old guys that maybe 
aren't going to spend nine grand on a, a YZ250F or a CRF or a, or a KX or whatever it is, but they might spend $5,000 on a weird 202 stroke because they're like, yeah, two strokes are from my childhood. I think it would work. I'm somewhat morally against it. In that, oh, I and so here's the key. Here's the, even though it's fuel injected, Suzuki would have to make it, um, uh, uh, premix. <laughs> they they would intentionally make it premix, even though it would be more of a hassle to to than just doing it as auto mix. That you'd have to make it so you premixed it. Well, no, no, my... And they'd sell you a special gas can for it. No, I don't even give a shit about the emissions aspect, because carb will take care of that. But, um, I I don't like... We end up becoming weird, dysfunctional people when we all buy into marketing that makes us think that we're hip for purchasing something. And the... The two-stroke thing is... I do kind of feel more powerful owning a YZ450. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, it, it's sort of like how insane things like the get-back whip becomes fashionable. Or how people thought that they would get some sort of social credit you know, as a dentist buying a motorcycle with skulls on it. These are insane propositions. But here we are. Uh, I don't know. And, you know, even though two strokes were a thing, you know, right up until the early 2000s as just like the default option, it, I don't know, it, it feels weird. Like, we don't need to start putting lead back in gasoline just to be cool. Like, we can... We, we can move on. Lightning just struck my brain. This isn't related in what you're talking to at all, but I need to say it so it's <laughs> recorded and I can remember this later. I think I've got the name for my 450. Okay. I think... Because it's got... I, I always give my, my bike so a woman's name if they have a name. So I'm thinking um, uh, Hillary. Okay. Because it's got so much torque, I feel like if I needed it to, it could fucking climb Everest. Not getting the reference. Sir Edmund Hillary's first one to climb Everest. Oh, Okay. I'm pretty sure it was Sir Edmund Hillary. Oh, now I've got to Google this because that could be really wrong. I'm happy to take your word for it. In any case, we should probably move on. To yeah, this, but... yeah, I'm right. Sir Edmund Hillary. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, good. I thought I was taking crazy pills. Okay, <laughs> are we ready to move on to best bike in the world this week? Well, actually, I do want to add one caveat. Oh, yes. This bike is totally le the, the DR200, which is, you know, we've been off on a little bit of a tangent, but 
Just to, to reel us back in. We're dancing around it. It's circumlocution. This, this only applies to buying a new DR200. If you end up inheriting or purchasing like a junked DR200 for like 500 to to $1,000 and it fits in your life, that's super awesome. Oh yeah, price changes the entire equation, of yeah. course. But if you're dropping $4,700 on a brand new DR200, reevaluate your decisions. Yeah, you should have been in a Honda dealership instead. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's move on to best bike. And the best bike in the world this week is kind of any year, but I specifically probably we're going to zero in on the 2001 to 2004 Yamaha YZ250F. <gasps> oh, that's my bike. It yeah. is. And cams. I mean, we've talked in the like the last four episodes on working <clears throat> on these bikes. And yes, we picked the YZ450F as best bike in the week when I bought one. But the 250, I'm going to say, is best bike in the world this week for an entirely new reason than we've talked about them before. And it's history. And it is... Okay, so let's uh, let's get into this. Um, so we have to talk about the 450 for a moment because the 250 is significant for the same reason, but a lot more. The YZ450 was an improved blown up YZ426, which was an improved blown up YZ400. And the YZ400 in like... The late 90s, like 96, 97, 98, somewhere in there, I can't remember the first year for it, was the first competition homologated four-stroke dirt bike, like supercross bike or arena cross, you know, whatever, you know, competition motocross. Like, so it raced against 252 strokes. Yes, 502 strokes were a big deal for a long time, but by the mid nineties, two fifty two strokes were really good. Just getting more and more powerful, better and better. They were liquid cooled. They were all kinds of things. The carburetors were so much better and they were making a lot of scary power and they were the business. So the two fifty really became the premier race class because they were lightweight and all this stuff. And, you know, when you watch those old 90s videos of early freestyle motocross, those are all 252 strokes. They're they're nice and light. They jump well, you know. Um, the, yeah, the 500s were powerful, but they're kind of heavy and uh, whatever. So all of a sudden there's this opportunity to make a four-stroke that competes. So the AMA allowed for a a up to 400 cc four stroke to compete against 252 strokes and everyone thought this was insane even honda who love four stroke always loved four stroke went four stroke the earliest of any japanese motorcycle manufacturer and had really tried to make a go of it with a lot of four stroke air-cooled dirt bikes like the xr series and things like that and 
you know, everyone was just, no, two strokes the way we like it, bubs. Real simple, carbureted two-stroke, pre-mixed. Yep, that's the way. Well, Yamaha said, hold my beer and made this this 404-stroke. That was just so awesome. They just got it right. And it won. And winning in racing really is enough to change the world. It it really is the be all and end all. And all of a sudden people went, oh, the best bike is a four stroke. I've got to have that. Also doesn't hurt that it's got a big displacement number. Everyone likes a big displacement number. So that's all good. All of a sudden the world is going, is going four stroke. And it's, and so it's only a matter of time until there is a 250 four stroke to compete against one, two fives. And that was the, the 2001 YZ 250 F, uh, a nice light four stroke or light four or four stroke, very powerful bike. Your average one, two, five, two stroke by 2001s making high twenties in the horsepower. And then boom, here comes the 250F claiming 33 horsepower, probably making more like 2930 or whatever. And it's great. And it's so great, it's still a totally viable bike today that still is way more than a lot of people can handle today. And just like the 500 two-strokes, everyone sort of took a step back to the 250 two-strokes, People are now stepping back from the 454 strokes back down to the 254 stroke bikes because they're lighter and easier to manage and there's still more power than anyone can really handle for the most part, except for the top pros. And there's even some pros now that are like, I kind of wish we were just racing 350s instead of 450s. These 450s are just too much. Right. So the YZ250F for being the first really competition motocross 254 stroke is a bike that really set the trend 20 years ahead of its time. Like there's this whole thing of 254 strokes really not getting a lot of respect for for a lot of years like for near for 15 years everyone go like oh you gotta have a 502 stroke or a 454 stroke or else you're a total fucking pussy right and in the last few years it seems and you can check this out like you don't believe me go on craigslist go on facebook marketplace and the 250s that are five six years older than whatever equivalent 450 are going for a few hundred dollars more like yeah, everywhere. Well, that's why you have a 450. Yeah, it was a smoking deal, and I'm not afraid. Right? right. <laughs> so I was like, okay, it's a little bit heavier, but guess what? I don't have to like change gear ever. <laughs> it's like an automatic. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, it's such a it's such a trend setting bike, and it's still. The they got the look of it right. It's still stylish. And they've sold so many of them. It's easy for parts. It's easy to work on. They really didn't change them all that much. So there's a lot of parts interchangeable between different like you know year models of it. 
the aftermarket is just gigantic and it's it's weird because honda is so much about four stroke but when it comes to the dirt yamaha really is this huge name i'm starting to understand the yamaha cult a bit because i it, it it's weird they they really they really made four stroke viable but they're also still the only ones still doing two stroke as well well i mean there's ktm but of the japanese manufacturers I don't know, maybe there's a Suzuki two-stroke still. I don't think so though. Well, I think they're they're also just well. Mo- most of the competition is always going to be behind between Honda and Yamaha, and Honda isn't doing the two-strokes, and and then um, you know Yamaha is just so overrepresented in the category. Well, I would. I wouldn't say overrepresented because they've kind of earned it, but, um, but yeah, you're either going to be a Honda, Yamaha or KTM. And that's just how Colorado is. You get some Husqvarna in there every now and then, but that's really it. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing about the, the two fifty F, well, I guess this is still just supporting the same point. If you're unsure what to buy, just buy a YZ250F. Because whether you're on a trail, whether you're at the track, whether you're doing motocross, whether you're just doing whatever, uh, you'll you'll show up and uh, people just be like, 250F, nice. Right? It, it kind of fits in everywhere. Yeah. And everyone sort of recognizes it as sort of the gold standard. Like, yes, there's... Yes, there's people that are going to be way more impressed by a Husqvarna or a KTM. Yes, there's people that are going to be into their gas gas and their betas and their, you know, all that stuff. And yeah, there are some people that are going to be diehard Honda for whatever reason, because maybe they're just diehard Honda on street bikes. So they're, this is an extension or they just love the reliability or whatever it is. But it's you really can't go wrong with a yz250 yeah. i mean i personally i'd still rather have a new crf 250 rx but i understand how this is just sort of a perfect bike and i you know and and going around the track on my 450 and going around on the 250 I, it kind of just depends on my mood or what time of day it is, whether the 250 or the 450 is better. That I cannot definitively say that the 450 is better. I, I have to concede that. I, well, it would be similar on the street to if you're riding a super sport or a leader bike. Yeah, an R6 versus an R1, yeah. You know, in, either, in either case, you cannot ride either bike to its limit. So maybe you want that torque and you want that feeling every now and then, but does it really matter? I mean, it's kind of nice on the 450 just to be walking, just, you know, it's, it's like walking around with a loaded gun. You're just sort of like, you know, maybe it's, I know I can't hit the broad side of a barn, but 
all I do know that I'm sitting on top of a lot of potential. And that's a very satisfying feeling. Also, mm. I really like not having to downshift. <laughs> and I can just make it up any third gear, it'll pull out. You know, it'll do it just whatever I want. It's fine. Um second gear, third gear, you just go around the whole track at whatever speed. It doesn't matter. It's kind of nice. Well, it's it, yeah, that is a weird thing. This is this is like a weird tangent, but in this phase where we're still learning and getting better, it's kind of nice to have this bike where I'm not changing gear all that much because you know, I might be tired or thinking about other things or thinking way too much about my body position. I come out of a turn and I know I can just make it over whatever next obstacle in whatever gear I'm in. I you know, I don't have to hit the brakes, but oh no, I'm in the wrong gear and totally blow a turn or a jump or whatever. It's it's kind of nice just to be able to focus on the track and what my body's doing right now. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, that's going to become irrelevant. But that is a weird learning advantage to the 450. Yeah. A lot know. of people argue that, well, you're just delaying picking up this skill of selecting the right gear. <laughs> and that might be a valid point. But <laughs> right now I'm going with the fact that for me, at my skill level, it simulates an Alta, except it makes awesome noises. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, the, the YZ250. I mean, I don't know. We've been... Yesterday we rode them all fucking day. And well, I think there's, a, you know, we can also make a call back to what we said before about working on the bikes and just the little details, like the cutout to get a long socket on the uh, on the head bolts, and just right everything being designed to be worked on. This isn't, you know. Yeah, you know, the you know it, it's it's not um it's not like Stockholm syndrome working on a Gucci or anything else. It's everything was simultaneously meant to be high performance and user serviceable at the same time. It seems the only thing that they didn't really nail is the. Um the the mod that everyone does to the carburetor putting in the the longer um air mixer screw so you can adjust the air mixture without having to move the carburetor at all that's true but in fairness they don't make the carburetor i feel like they could have asked kn to ship it with a nicer air screw that's that that that's a pot they could have done that well you know it kind of seems like an obvious thing but well again a listener can inform us if they know when did that become a popular mod i'm gonna guess it was a mod before the 250f existed and maybe they just thought it's something everyone does we don't really need to fuck with it I mean, they're not. I mean, none of their bikes that they're selling are carbureted anymore, so it's it's moot and done with. But anyway, 
I mean, we saw a lot. I, I, if of any single model at the track, I, I'd say the 250F and the the WR250 probably the most common. Oh, by far. Next common might be a Honda XR. We did see a lot of XRs. It was almost kind of split between XRs and two strokes of all kinds. Yeah, they're making a, a weird comeback, uh, which is going to be short-lived, but I don't know. People just fucking love it. I don't know why. They're, uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I need, well, I, may, I think I need to get a 125. But, all right, let's. Well, no, I think the 125 is very engaging to a particular kind of person who doesn't want to, who doesn't want to, um, who doesn't want to do more intense riding, but just wants to make the riding they're already doing more intense. If that makes sense. They well, want they want to add more technical skill to what they're already doing rather than to rather than to start doing more intense riding. Well, maybe what I need to do is offer to dad that i need to buy the ct175 because i don't want a 125 to do any crazy jumps or anything i have a bike for that what i want a 125 for is something that's a little bit ridiculous and maybe a little bit more of a of a, a trick to ride that i can something that's not fast that i can ride with the kids on trails because their bikes are not going to be all that fast Oh, the 175 would be good for that. That makes a lot of sense. Well, it... Right. Do it, do I need a YZ125 or should I just buy, like, Dad's really nice condition 78 CT175, I think? Because he never rides the fucking thing. Someone's yeah. got to. I mean, you're still going to roll the dice on every trail. I would recommend that you have cell service if you do this. <laughs> We, uh, uh, no, I think that bike's pretty reliable. I think it's fine. I don't know. It it cracked the crankcase in the in the Coda parking lot. No, it didn't. The um the tab off the uh kickstart uh broke. Oh, was that the only thing? I thought I thought the whole case. Broke. No, no, no. The 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 there's a tab on the kickstart that um that went um, okay well this very much throws dad's diagnostic skills into question because that was not what i heard maybe it was a piece of the inside of the crankcase but it was something that had to do with um some piece that that gets the the kickstart to ratchet up so the kickstart uh, okay. was just like dead in the water. It wasn't ratcheting and then and then letting you kick turn the engine over. The bike never broke. Theoretically, you could have just bump started it the entire time. Well, in that case, I don't know why I didn't get an apology. Because for the longest time, that was apparently my fault. Was it? I thought <laughs> I I thought I was riding it when it happened. No, I was on it when it happened. Oh, okay. Anyway. We should probably move on at this point. We're, right. we're getting okay. pretty tangent heavy at this point. Okay, so uh, let's get to the meat and potatoes of this. Um, as I said before, 
let's talk, uh, get a little brief rundown of kind of where we're at skill-wise on Riding Dirt. And this isn't a story about how cool we are. This is relevant in we are starting to get a rare glimpse of, of real insight into this age-old question of do dirt riders have better pre-qualifications for streets or do street riders have better pre-qualifications for dirt? Is there any real overlap? And what's blown out of proportion? What's actually similar? What holds water here? Well, I'll, I'll uh, offer an answer. What's your feeling? My answer is... In either direction, if you ask the question in terms of if you ride dirt, does it help with learning to ride on the street? And if you ride street, does it help with learning on to riding on the dirt? My answer is yes, if you're humble. I agree with that. I, I was going to say that, yes, both help you in either direction, but... They're none of the none of the things that I think help you are the commonly held beliefs. Right. It's more of the intangible stuff, I think. But there I have identified some things that I think do translate one to the other directly, but they're unusual. You it's just mm -hmm. you have to think of something as a different motion, all of a sudden you it it pops into place. So um, I would, uh, the number one thing that I think has pre-qualified us, you know, sort of got, uh, 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 steepened our learning curve is, um, commit to the corner. Yeah. Well, actually that's not true. The number one thing is all the controls are automatic. But now you've just made a liar out of me. Well, <laughs> well, no, it, yeah, like yeah. all all the controls are automatic. Uh, yeah, whether when you're mm. if you so I'm I'm about to start teaching the kids to ride, and they have no knowledge of the clutch and the gear shift and all of that, and that's going to be a trick because they don't have. A knowledge of how gearing works they don't even have bicycles with gear their bikes are fixed gear so the, the you know, they were never they haven't been teenagers driving manual cars yet even just the whole concept of gearing is completely new and this is the first time they're going to come face to face with it and that's weird like, mm. When I first started riding bikes, I could drive a stick car, right? I, I theoretically knew how everything was going to work. I'd used a clutch before. Not a hand clutch, but I had used a clutch. I was familiar with the idea of how you let it out and give gas at the same time. That helped a lot. That. If you're starting out riding dirt and you don't have this knowledge already, that's going 
you know, realizing when it's time to get to the next gear. These are, you take all of this for granted, knowing that you need to be in neutral when you start. These are all little things you have to learn. And this can take up weeks of time. If you've only got one, two days a week to go do this, th this can take half the freaking summer just to get some of this basic stuff down. And even if you're smart enough that someone only needs to explain it once, it's going to take a while for it to become automatic. Right. So it sounds super simple, but it's it's really not. That don't take it for granted that your your front and rear braking is just automatic. You know to reach there and you know which brake is going to do what and what that's going to feel like. You know what the top of first and second gear feel like. You understand what uh, how the how it, the bike's going to behave when you just get to the top of a gear and slam into the next one. You know that jerk of the bike is coming. Uh, you know that's that's not to be taken for granted. I don't know what 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 um what do you got? Yeah, I well, I would also just say. There's so much going on, and every additional element that you simultaneously have to manage just exponentially increases the difficulty and the learning curve. And just to be able to put, just to be able to take clutch control and shifting, and man, and having the concept of a of a rear and a front brake, and just being able to put those into the back of your mind and just call it up at will just it's not like if it's one of four things you have to manage it's 25 percent easier it's it's like half the difficulty or less it just massively reduces the overhead on actually picking up the skill well it's the it's the five dollars of attention in twist of the wrist right Right. When it's already down, you, all of a sudden you get to spend all this time learning the dirt specific skills because you've got everything else down. Yeah. Because the bike, f f you know, operates the same way for, you know, for the most part. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, it's like the first, you know, once everybody passes the MSF course and they go ride on the street and they do their first big ride. You know, after a hundred miles, your your first one hundred mile trip is fucking exhausting. Yeah, like it's just it absolutely destroys you, just because you're so paranoid and you've put so much of your attention into operating the bike and looking for threats and and different things that, and and also just trying to remember where you're trying to go at the same time that by the end of it you're just completely spent. But then, at a certain point, you can go and do an iron butt if you put enough time into it. And if you've already got some of that squirreled away, if you've already got some of that down, it just gets so much easier. Right. Okay, uh, so the next thing I want to talk about is, is commit to the corner. Right. This is something that you can't really read about. Someone tells you it, and at some point you just get it. Oh, look where you want to go. Look, look deep, 
and commit. Yeah, it's not something that can be taught. It's just a leap of faith that has to be taken. And until you do it and you realize that everything's going to be okay, you don't have this. It's not part of your psyche. Now, I'm going to say that this is something that dirt riders, this definitely works both ways, but people who start on dirt might, I would say your average dirt rider probably has this stronger than your average street rider. I would. I would I would uh I would agree with that. I would think it it's would probably harder to earn when you're starting out on dirt than it is on the street because well I don't know, maybe I guess it just depends on who you are. But yeah, you when when you're when you're taking a jump, when you're when you're doing these things, you 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 have to commit. You've got to be like, "All right, I've got to take this really confident body position and hold the throttle and go at this speed and I have to commit to doing this." And that's a huge part of both riding styles. And as much as any individual technique, committing is one of the biggest. Yeah, but this is also something that can be learned in, you know, skateboarding or skiing or snowboarding or surfing. Yeah, this is but just, this look is... where you want to go commit on bikes, especially. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So thus far, this sounds this is a wildly unsatisfying to dirt and street riders because they're like, well, they're not talking about anything that's special to my sport. (laughs) uh, But there are, there are some things that are very unique. So I think dirt riders are going to understand a sense of balance on the bike a lot better there. And they're going to understand traction better than street riders. Uh, I don't think that's true. I, th- I think the one thing they would understand a lot better is suspension. Well, they definitely do that. But I'm talking about that, like, you know, riding through a puddle and, like, the back end skipping out on you a little bit. And just knowing to hold steady throttle and mm. just ride through it. That that still freaks out a lot of seasoned street riders. It doesn't happen that often, thank goodness. You know, but, but a little bit of sand or gravel on the road, the back wheel skidding out... There's a lot of street riders that unnecessarily get into an accident because they just freak out in that moment. They don't have that skill. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think really everything can almost be put down to traction and suspension as the actual differences. And then really all, I mean, when you think... Body position and specific techniques are huge, though. Right, but those are all managing traction and suspension. Uh, okay, yes. In the sense that all math is is done by the basic operations, yes. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, yes, there are, there are massive tomes that can be written on the subjects. But, I mean, this is why the skills are fairly transferable, is because once you get past you know, the basic operations are so similar. Yeah, well, okay, so so here's something that, that's going to be a little bit more satisfying. Anything to do with riding and fitness, 
dirt rider, you know, and endurance dirt riders on average are going to have a huge leg up. Yes. Dirt riders definitely win there. There, the, the idea that you should be in a certain condition to ride the, the, I, I, I'm going to guess that as far as riding, riding for a length of time, dirt riders are probably going to understand, uh, conservation of energy riding in a position that even if it seems like it's like it takes more energy in the short term you're saving energy long term mm-hmm. you know gripping the tank is still something i catch myself just not doing enough on a street bike and i'm probably now gonna just be like oh I, this is nothing this is so easy to grip the tank on this street bike versus my dirt bike like why am i why have i not been doing this a thousand percent more this whole time uh but yeah the the fitness aspect the it's so much more demanding than people think so much more i really wasn't entirely prepared like the first few times i went out it just wrecked me i at work i actually fell over like one of my legs gave out but (laughs) i'm really not looking forward to getting up off of this couch right (laughs) but i you know yeah the the that that aspect of it i think your your dirt rider on average understands a lot more so that is definitely an uh you know chalk one up on that side of things um i think your average street rider is gonna be better at calculating multiple things going on so so to put one on that navigating you know traffic city traffic yeah, navigating a, just a dynamic situation and being present and aware of everything around you rather than what you're going to do. Definitely on the street side. That's a huge, that's a huge thing. Not enough attention is spent on that, but that is massive. I, r- thus far, all we've been really called to do is notice if someone's coming up the side of you and don't follow directly behind somebody over a jump. That's not a cool thing to do. Right? That's really about the, the basics of what we've been asked. Although, you know, etiquette in general, it seems to be extremely lax at the <laughs> track we're going to. It's not uncommon to see four-wheelers and ATVs or even side-by-sides riding the wrong direction on the track. Just finding a flat spot, like the middle of a turn, and just start doing donuts. It's it's a bit much. They're, they could do with a little bit more like bilingual signage to explain to people which direction the track needs to be going. I don't think... Uh, it's not an insurmountable problem, but it's an issue for now. Anyway, uh, right. So let's get into some like the the big techniques here. So um, I think uh, I think for emergency maneuvers, evasive maneuvers, emergency braking, 
I might give a slight edge to Dirt because just the nature of the writing kind of involves that more often than Street. I think if you ride Dirt, you're sort of constantly presented with these little emergencies. They're not at as high a speed, but there's a lot more often you need to just come to an emergency stop to avoid crashing into a thing or a person or or going off the track or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll blow corners, you'll you'll jump something and land weird and crash and whatever. Just emergency maneuvers that that ability to slow down time and and stop the bike or whatever is probably built in to someone that's been riding dirt better than it is a street person. I mean, a lot of street riders just never work on this. They're like, well, my plan's just to be awesome instead. Well, also, I think, you know, somebody riding dirt is just used to everything being a little bit more fluid. Whereas on the street, you might think of things more binary. Either I have traction or I don't have traction. Either I'm, everything's in line and I'm on course or I'm veering off the road. Whereas on dirt, everything's just a bit more of a spectrum. And when things aren't quite going the way you expect them to, you have you have the tool set to adapt and to to react to it. Yeah. Um, with let's see, I'm trying to think of another one to chalk up on on the street side because because I do believe the two are very even. When it, when it comes down to it. I, I feel like riding street bikes for so long has has given us a big leg up. If we had showed up at the track and had never ridden a bike before, we would be nowhere near where we already are in just three days there. And really, like for you, only like a day and a half of like full riding, really. Mm, yeah outside of here and there um so that definitely recently hasn't been much um let me think like besides just the basic mechanics um so well i i think what i think the thing that we picked up is so as you said you have to be humble we spent a lot of time understanding what proper technique is on the street bike so understanding first off that those things exist and then understanding that there's a whole nother set of them and searching those out helped us just i just being disciplined helped because we both thought to ourselves and it's not like i had to say to you oh here's you know the the leg lifting technique and here's when you do it and why and whatever you just read into why you do that why you turn that way you know, because we both understood oh you're setting yourself up for a turn on a street bike you know move your butt over an inch or two get your weight hanging off one side counter steer look into the turn um trail braking accelerating out of the turn checking checking your line for obstacles just all these things we do every single turn 
and adjusting those as they need to be, but also slow speed maneuvers, the the difference of why sometimes you lean with the bike or lean over further than the bike, and sometimes while you lean less, you stay upright while the bike is leaned over, like parking lot maneuvers. And there's this whole set of skills, you know, actual turning of the handlebars versus counter steering when you do whatever, when you drag rear brake, when you drag clutch. Like a lot of people ha- uh, teach themselves or have to be taught like, oh, you can pull in the clutch rather than change gear when you're taking turns on your dirt bike and then let the clutch out and accelerate out of the turn. Well, that's a slow parking lot maneuver on street bikes. Yeah. So understanding like, oh, here's this thing we already have. Here's how it's reapplied in this situation. There's a lot of that for me. A lot of understanding how turning on a motocross track really isn't all that dissimilar from slow speed turns on a on a street bike. A lot of the body positioning is very similar. Obviously, on a street bike, I'm not like putting my nuts up on the tank like I am with the dirt bike. And you know, understanding that the physics of what's going on, you throw your leg up, not so much that there's weight off the side of the bike, although it does help, but it's also weight that's up front and low. That helps you turn as much as anything else. Plus, it's kind of another part of looking into the turn. It's part of committing as well. It kind of just directs your body. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so those things. D- understanding that, oh, we've already learned a discipline of body maneuvers. It, it's, it's almost like learning a second coding language. Like, oh, I'm going to do all these similar things. I just have to change the syntax. Right. I I think that's, I mean, hmm. yeah. I just had a really nerdy thought. I was like, (laughs) in my worldview, if, uh, if <laughs> if 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 motorcycles are an object language then then ATVs are definitely javascript and i have no patience for it <laughs> anyway um so yeah the um yeah that that's a that's a thing like if you're if you're a disciplined street rider if you have if you have street like street bike track skills that is going to translate a lot well i mean most people that race race both yeah for this very reason if once you're good at one you're going to pick up the other so quickly yeah i well, I would say i definitely see a person who rides street bikes getting into dirt biking and someone says well here's what you're going to want to do here and here and here and they'll be like oh excuse me i know how to ride a motorcycle that person's going to eat shit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see here. Um, I, if you'd asked me a couple weeks ago, the person that rides dirt may have understood safety gear better. 
But now that we've gone to the track a few times, I'm no longer convinced that's true. <laughs> yeah. I thought we are going to show up with like a hodgepodge of some new and some used gear. None of it really going together very well. These used bikes. And we're going to look like such a bunch of idiots. I, I guess I just had in my mind that these guys were going to show up with brand new like F-350s with huge horse trailers converted to carry like 20 bikes each and all this special equipment and matching gear and these shiny new bikes. And the reality is, is it's just a scene out of Mad Max. Everything's yeah. fucked up. <laughs> I mean, there are those guys with nice bikes and, and sharp gear and and everything, but we blended right in right away. They were disturbingly so. <laughs> if anything, we were overdressed for the occasion. <laughs> uh, yeah, I. So I don't know. Maybe may, uh, that that's a. It seems to be a universal that there's an underappreciation for safety gear. Because I, I mean, even as far as the kids go, I was like, oh, I've got to get all this stuff for my kids or people are going to judge me and whatever. And there's kids out there with fucking nothing, just a helmet and like gloves and not even real boots and whatever, just ripping it up, doing jumps and everything. And nobody cares. I, which is great. We, I was talking about how... Uh, it's so wonderful growing up at a time when the the safety movement was starting to really pick up speed. I mean, I know people have been kind of having a an increased sense of safety since like the the seventies, probably. But uh, you know, like kind of being at like roller skating rinks in, in the nineties, and you know, someone going around with a whistle, kind of like just whistling at people, and that was really the most you ever got. And then. Uh, you know, no running on the deck at the pool and wait 30 minutes before you swim and and all and everything just building up and building up and building up in safety until no one can do anything remotely fun. Just, yeah, fun. And then all of a sudden that we're just at this like giant place like it's like you know, five square miles and they're like, here's a bunch of jumps. Have at it. In fact, it's incurred like you know when when the main feature of the entire place is this jump where you just launch yourself like fifty feet above the ground. At what point do you interject and tell somebody that they're doing something that's a little too dangerous? I mean, it's like six feet. Well, you're six feet above the jump, but like if you miss it and go off the sides of that jump, right? You know, you're. That's a bad time. There's yeah. the people that are hucking that triple. Uh, there's points where they're like, maybe not 50 feet. That's an exaggeration. But like 25 feet above the level of the parking lot. Yeah. You could launch yourself off the side of that thing. Like, <laughs> and come down 25 feet into the parking lot. <laughs> Uh, the odds are incredibly low you'd ever do that, but it's possible someone could just accidentally elbow you and you just go off the side of it. It's not completely out of the question. So anyway, um, I mean, 
yesterday I was going into more of the specifics of the techniques, like like all like the standing on the bikes versus sitting, and 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 how those were different versions of each other. But I, it's it's probably not really worth going into that level of detail. But I hear a lot that the dirt riders say. Oh, well, I'm just used to the back wheel going out, you know, and then then there's some sort of idea that in the event of a crash or, you know, in an emergency, the dirt riders are going to be just so prepared compared to a street rider. You know, they're like, well, I'm just that that's just what I live and breathe. But it is a different thing. The speeds are different. And again, we said, you know, they're not they're not able to. There, I, I think street riding trains you to to monitor multiple things at once better. So I, I the traditional arguments of who is more prepared, I don't think hold up. Yeah. I mean, this, the dirt rider also doesn't have the experience of suddenly regaining traction either. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of it kind of comes back as as like this at the rate that it left, whatever that was. Yeah. Um. So you may be out of the puddle, but your tire might still be completely caked in mud. Yeah. It. Mm, I was gonna say something. Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it. I've lost it. Well, uh, I, really, the final thought is it's a stupid argument because you're not really going to know until you just go do both. Yeah. And it, it's shockingly accessible. I We may have, knowing what we know now, we may have purchased completely different things and different gear and whatever to just get up and doing this. We were very us about it and did a lot of research and purchased this these specific things and this and, and built up this list of stuff to have and whatever. And in reality, we probably could have just gathered all this crap in a day and just hit the track and started riding. And... And not worried about it so much. I, I mean, I think we were just... Because of how much we know about the street bike world, we thought like, oh man, like we're going to be showing up and all these people are going to be Actually, so, I do have one so thing, ahead of us. And I do have one thing we can chalk up on the dirt side. What's that? Uh, doing your own maintenance. Yes. that That's the... Well, again, not a guarantee, but probably going to be something the dirt rider is... I would is say it's a 70-30 split in their favor. Yeah. Um... What? Hmm. Yeah. I, hmm. I feel like we we've just specifically mentioned more dirt. No, I think we've been pretty fair on both sides. Um, the who would be hmm. Who would be? Um, I'm just trying to think of things that aren't even like particularly skills now. Like, um, like who's more inclusive? Is uh, is it is it dirt or street? Do you think? I think that's way too broad a question. 
You know, it, it's neither. It's scooters. Yeah. <laughs> they both lose it. Scooters are more inclusive. Well, uh, scooters have the best clubs. Street wins on this by default. Uh, simply um, taste in music. Because I found that dirt riders universally have horrible taste in music. Yeah, this is this is an issue. There, I, there's something about there's something about dirt bikes uh, that you know still appreciates rap metal. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> <laughs> Just some weird blend of new country and rap metal. <laughs> oh, uh, amateur tattoos. Well, I know amateur tattoos go through both sides. Um, uh, but full back work. I noticed a lot of that. The the dirt guys are very much still into the uh, the 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 cross covering your back with all kinds of weird shit around it. That's still a big look. Um, I think dirt riders are much more likely to have tramp stamps. It's a curious thing, but I you yeah. just see a lot of dudes without like, you know, changing in and out of gear in the parking lot, and I was just sort of like, I don't think I've seen a tramp stamp on a guy in quite a while. And yet here they are. I didn't think they still existed in twenty twenty one, but here we are. Uh <laughs> um what time are we at? Because we're really reaching here now. It's true. We should just wrap this up. We, we thought we were going to try to make this a short one. We are at... Uh, oh, it's only an hour and a half. Um, we've only gone like 50% over how long we thought we were going to. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Closing thoughts. You just got to do both. No one really has that big of a leg up. It's kind of how serious yeah. you are about the discipline. Most of it will translate over. Yeah. If you acquire skills and you are humble, it seems like that's just the easiest path. Just. Yeah. yeah. And as it turns out, the probably 70% of either side have no idea what they're doing, regardless of whatever skill level they claim to be at. Yeah. There's just as many clowns on the dirt as there are on the street. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah, find trusted experts. Don't presume to know what you're doing. Yeah, stay humble. Be fit, and then grow a pair and fucking send it. So there you go. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, so this was episode 147. We've got something really big for episode 150. You're gonna lose your minds. Uh, let's see, remind everyone, hey, leave those ratings or reviews wherever. It's really helped a lot. I was looking on Apple Podcasts the other day, and like Apple bumped us into like the top 10 results for motorcycle or motorcycles or whatever in podcasts. That's a big deal. We've seen a big spike in listens. It's really nice. We don't want to, we don't make any money off doing this, but it is nice if people are actually listening. So that's cool. Keep sending weird feedback to Google. I think that's been the most powerful thing that's happened is people just clicking on the Google feedback button when you when you Google motorcycle podcasts and just leaving insane shit. 
and I just like knowing that people are just give, sending Google feedback like like this podcast gives us the best Asian sandwich recipes and, and, and some AI has to do something with that information. <laughs> Fight the system and send them nonsense feedback. Okay, so with that, let's play the outro. Keep fighting the dragon. And I don't want to die. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Cold.